Today from the global lane, pressure to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria rising. After Afghanistan, a grave warning from the Kurds. There will be casualties and ISIS will threaten international security once again. Del Rio Disappearing Act. Migrants out from under the bridge. Thousands more on the way. They're incentivized because of the success of those Haitians in Del Rio getting across and now into American communities. American anti-Semitism rising, threatening Jewish college students. They're afraid to wear any kind of outward signs. It's a scary place for a lot of our Jewish friends. And a country music star shining brightly, singing for life. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. As the war begins to wind down in Syria, external and internal forces are jockeying for position. When he met recently with Syrian President Assad, Russian President Putin said all foreign forces need to withdraw from the country and leave Syria to the Syrians. He's talking mainly about Turkey and the United States. While U.S. combat troops are set to withdraw from Iraq by year's end, at least 900 are expected to remain in Syria. And some analysts fear Turkey is planning another offensive in Syria in the months ahead. Caught up in all of this are Christians and the Syrian Kurds. Well, joining us from Washington are Nadine Mayenza. She is chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. And also with us is the co-president of the Executive Council of the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, Ilhan Ahmed. Ms. Ahmed, you're in Washington and you say America's Kurdish friends in northern Syria are in urgent need of help. Why? What's happening to them now, two years uh, after President Trump withdrew U.S. troops from northern Syria? The situation in North and East Syria, especially after the American withdrawal during Trump's administration, created a big disaster, which caused a large number of residents in the area of the attacks to become displaced. Those were in addition to those already displaced by ISIS, so approximately 70,000 residents total in the area, including the families of ISIS who are still present in there. In addition to that, they destroyed the infrastructure of the area. So there is a great need to provide aid to the region to rebuild the infrastructure in addition to developing projects so that the residents of the region are able to manage themselves on their own without relying or placing the burden on the countries that helped us, especially the United States of America, which supported us in the anti-terror campaign. It's necessary to start a new campaign in a new phase to rebuild the infrastructure of the region and improve the lives of its residents in general. It's good to talk with you, Nadine, as well. You've spent quite a bit of time visiting the Kurds in northeastern Syria. So do you think Trump's troop withdrawal was a mistake? And how concerned are you that Turkey President Erdogan is preparing for another major offensive, perhaps before the end of this year? Yes, yeah, so at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, where I have the privilege of serving as the chair, we have made um, recommendations to the U.S. government to support the autonomous administration in North and East Syria because of their remarkable religious freedom conditions. And Turkey's invasions have threatened that and, in fact, caused um, hundreds of thousands of peoples to flee, really targeting particularly Yazidi and Christian communities there. And um, certainly we've asked, um, made recommendations to the U.S. government to ask Turkey to withdraw from northeast Syria and to also lift sanctions and provide other support to northeast Syria because of these remarkable conditions. Ms. Ahmed, you've expressed concerns about Erdogan and Turkey, but how about the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad? His forces now control most of the country. Tanks recently rolled into one of the last rebel strongholds in uh, Dara. 
And I guess Idlib province in the north is still a problem for him, but Assad says he favors a decentralized Syria. You say you have something better in mind. What is it? Please explain to us. Of course, we are with a decentralized Syria that guarantees the rights of all Syrians with all their components, including Kurds, Arabs, Syriacs, Turkmen, Assyrians, and Christians, in addition to insisting that the solution must be inside Syria and not a solution that is imposed by foreign countries on the Syrian people. The choice of the political solution by the Syrians is, in my opinion, the best and most correct, and the decision must be Syrian. But we also need American support in this regard to put pressure on the Syrian regime. In addition, the Russians have so far been supportive of the regime, and we believe that there must be an agreement or understanding about putting pressure on the Syrian regime to take steps towards a political solution. While we all know that um, the, the Syrian Democratic Forces were key, of course, in defeating the ISIS Caliphate, but what most people don't know is as they were liberating areas from ISIS, they were also setting up this self-governance where everyone has a seat at the table, regardless of your gender, your um, religious affiliation, your ethnicity. And so this inclusivity is really a, 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 such a fascinating um, example of things we can do in the future in other um, fragile areas. And so what we see is, is a project here that, that has remarkable human um, rights and that the, the U.S. should be supporting, um, and it benefits the U.S. to be there. Ms. Ahmed, uh, you would need support from the United States to advance this idea, wouldn't you? But it, it seems this administration is ready to disengage from the region. Kurds and Christians in northern Iraq are concerned about President Biden's upcoming withdrawal of U.S. troops from there. And Secretary of State Blinken recently met with the Turkish foreign minister. It appears the U.S. is shifting to a closer relationship with Turkey. So how do you expect to turn things around? Our situation is different from the situation in Afghanistan. We are currently meeting with officials in the White House and Congress. What we heard from them is that so far there is no withdrawal and support will continue to be provided to the Syrian Democratic Forces, especially since terrorism still exists and it is necessary to continue this campaign. Any weakness in the fight against terrorism will lead to it emerging again and thus there will be casualties and ISIS will threaten international security once again. Okay, Ilhan Ahmed, co-president of the Executive Council, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, and Nadine Mayenza, chair of the USCIRF. Thank you both for taking the time to provide your insights with us. This is the scene on the U.S. southern border at Del Rio, Texas. Where are the Haitians now? Are more coming? Is the Biden administration in the country prepared for another mass onslaught? Well, joining us to share his thoughts is the former U.S. Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. Mr. Wolf currently serves as a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Chad, it's good to have you with us. So where are those Haitian immigrants who just last week were living in squalor at that makeshift border camp and only several thousand were sent back to Haiti? So where are the rest? Well, it's good to be on with you. Thanks for the invitation. I would say that the vast majority of those Haitians that were under the bridge in Del Rio have been released into the United States. The DHS secretary has said upwards to 12,000 of that 15,000 have been released uh, into the interior of the United States while they uh, undergo their immigration court proceedings. Where, where do you think they are? Do you have any information on there? Where did they send them? Where in the U.S.? Uh, they're usually uh, along the border. Uh, in communities along the border, they then hand them over to nonprofits. And those nonprofits, along with uh, the federal government, 
fund their transportation to anywhere in the country they would like to go. So if a migrant says, I want to go to Seattle or Chicago or New York or Atlanta, uh, they are put on a, a train, a bus or an airplane uh, to, to be flown uh, to that city of their choice. You know that some people are saying that uh, they're being sent to red and purple states, uh, not only for labor reasons, jobs to fill, but also political reasons. What are your thoughts on that, Chad? Yeah, I don't know that I would agree that it's being done for political reasons. It's certainly for economic reasons. Most of these migrants have a place in mind that they want to go. They usually have family in those uh, places that, and they usually have some type of uh, employment or a job lined up as well. So a lot of these migrants uh, know exactly what they're doing as they cross that border, as they're being released into, uh, into communities. They know exactly where they want to go and how they get there. Many Americans are outraged that they may lose their jobs because of the federal vaccine mandate, yet migrants entering illegally into the U.S. are being allowed in without any vaccine required. So what have you learned? Have any of them been tested for COVID-19, other health issues? Well, I think the, the administration, the Biden administration, certainly has a, a double standard here that doesn't make a lot of sense to, to most Americans. Not only uh, do you have, you know, you have hundreds of thousands of folks coming across that border every month, uh, there is no requirement for a vaccine. They have a choice. So the migrants have a choice, but uh, some American citizens have no choice. And the Border Patrol we're hearing today will be required to take the vaccine or perhaps risk losing their job by November. That's just in a, several weeks. So think about that. You have law enforcement officers that are dealing with these migrants and coming into contact with these migrants every day. The migrants have a choice on whether or not to take the vaccine but the Border Patrol and law enforcement don't. I don't know why anyone would want to be a Border Patrol agent at this time. Uh, it, it's just crazy the way they're treated, uh, you know, uh, using reins on a horse, and then they come out and say, oh, they're, they're whipping them. Uh, obviously, they've never been on a horse before. They don't know what reins are all about. Well, how likely is this that we're going to have another crisis before winter sets in, that this will just keep on going? Well, I think you have to plan on that there will be another a uh, caravan or two that come to that border. I think they are incentivized, they being the traffickers and the smugglers, as well as the migrants themselves, they're incentivized because of the success of those Haitians in Del Rio getting across and now into American communities. So uh, they see that it can be successful. I think it's the Biden administration's job right now to break up those caravans and they need to do that by working with Mexican officials and others. But they also need to do that by not only the messaging, but the policies they put in place. And right now, they are encouraging not only families and minors to come across that border because they've told them you won't be removed. There will be no consequence for your illegal activity of coming across that border. Uh, you'll be resettled here in the United States and, and you can go on with your life. And so that is a significant pull factor that they really have to address if they don't want to see caravan after caravan approach that border. And, and you mentioned smuggling. We've seen meth and fentanyl seizures at the border increase dramatically this year. So how concerned are you about gangs trafficking drugs and even humans? No, oh, it's it's a significant concern. Obviously, when you have 15,000 folks under that bridge in Del Rio, it takes an immense amount of Border Patrol time and attention to care for and to process those individuals. And that's time that you don't have Border Patrol on the line uh, on that international border, making sure that you're not only keeping migrants out, but you're keeping illegal narcotics and other contraband out. And so when you have something like Del Rio, it just sucks up all the resources uh, and that leaves a void for the cartels. And we have to remember that each of those 200,000 individuals that crossed that border in the month of August paid the cartels between five and $10,000 each 
So that's millions of dollars a day that the cartels are, are reinvesting into their criminal enterprise. Um, and so it's only making them more bold and stronger by the day. And Chad, before you go, I've got to ask you about Afghan refugees. Thousands are being brought to the United States. How confident are you that uh, they've been properly vetted, that we won't be letting in some Taliban or other terrorists? Well, I've got some real concerns about the manner in which the administration uh, not only withdrew from Afghanistan and Kabul, but the manner in which they're trying to vet all of these individuals. You have to remember that the vast majority of folks that they have brought back to the United States are not SIV holders. Those are the special immigrant visa holders. We actually know or we actually have a lot of information about who they are because they worked with the U.S. military. The vast majority of folks that we have brought into the United States and paroled into the United States are just normal, regular, everyday Afghans who, who wanted to leave. We have very little information, and so it's actually very difficult to do proper background and vetting checks on these individuals. And of course, we're doing that on the back end. We're doing it when they're already here in the country versus doing it overseas at a safe third country. So I've got some real concerns about the manner and the speed of which they're trying to do these background checks. The system's not designed to do it the manner in the, in the manner in which they want it to be done. And so I think quarters or will be cut, and we're going to miss things. And it only takes one or two bad individuals uh, to have something significant happen here in the homeland. Chad Wolf, former U.S. Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, visiting fellow with the Heritage Foundation. Thank you, Chad. We appreciate you sharing your time and insights today. Great. Well, thanks for having me. When the American Jewish Committee recently questioned young Americans ages 18 to 29 about anti-Semitism, more than half of them said they were unfamiliar with the meaning of the word. That shocking finding comes as anti-Jewish and anti-Israel sentiment proliferates on American college campuses and even in the halls of the U.S. Congress. Well, here to set us straight is the executive director of Passages, a group that connects Christian college students with Israel and the roots of their Judeo-Christian faith. Scott, it's always good to have you with us. So the boycott, divest, and sanction, the BDS movement against Israel, really began and spread on college campuses. Anti-Semitic speech is allowed, while those who speak in favor of Israel are often silenced. So tell us what you've witnessed about this rising hostility on college campuses, and why do you think it's happening? Well, Gary, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. It's truly an honor. Um, you know, it, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, this this did start on college campuses, and you know, I, I think something that we've that we've seen time and time again with our Jewish friends on campuses, and when our our you know Christian students come back from Israel, we you know we we help engage them uh, with their local Jewish community on the campus, um, because simply more and more young Jewish people, Jewish students are afraid to be Jewish on their campuses. They're afraid to wear any kind of outward signs. I think that exists beyond campus, but specifically on campus, it's a scary place for a lot of our Jewish friends. And that just can't be. We can't let that sort of sit back and let that happen. And so, you know, it's very important that our students understand what anti-Semitism is and when they go back to campus to build bridges of friendship and allyship with their Jewish friends. And all they have to do is ask their Jewish friends uh, because they 